I'd like for you to turn to the 80th Psalm in the Scripture. I want to read verses, the 12 verses of the 80th Psalm from beginning to end. I'd like for you to turn to that Psalm with me. How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in thy house, they are ever, ever praising thee. How blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the highways to Zion, who wants to make it to Jerusalem. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring, a place of springs, really. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in thee. One of the most intriguing spots in Jerusalem is the Wailing Wall. It is the only thing left of the ancient temple in the city of Jerusalem. And it is at the Wailing Wall that the modern Jew links up with his cultural and spiritual past. It's fascinating to watch as hundreds of Jews come to the wailing wall every day. They put their hands on it and they caress it with a tenderness of a mother caressing the face of her child. Some of them kiss the wall and they stand before the wall and pray and some will laugh and some will cry and they read the Torah there. It's the most holy place in all the world to the Jews. And in the cracks of the wailing wall, they shove little cylinders, white paper rolled up into cylinders. And on those little strips of paper, there are names of their loved ones that did not get to make it to the wailing wall. Our scripture verses, our prayers, our scripture promises that they claim, and they write them out on these little pieces of paper and shove them into the cracks of the wall. Every Jew in the world will find a way to the wailing wall 
to Jerusalem. The 84th Psalm is a psalm that fits into a special classification known as the Pilgrim Psalms for its message and spiritual significance moves around the journey that a Jew makes in the name of God. Thus the pilgrim, for a pilgrim is a person who makes a journey to a holy place or a shrine as a devotee. He's one who makes a pilgrimage, a journey in the name of God. And the 84th Psalm is just such a thing. It is the experience of one who has been to the holiest place in the world and now he yearns to go back there. He's probably in exile. We don't know too much about the author of the 84th Psalm. Perhaps he's in exile somewhere, but he's separated from Jerusalem and there wells up in his heart this desire to go back to the place where God dwells. Now I want to give you the outline of the 84th Psalm and then I want to come back and put some flesh on it. Three points and a poem. The first point the description of the pilgrim's passion, verses 1 through 3 and verse 10. Second point, the description of the pilgrim's perspective, verses 4 through 6. And then finally, the description of the pilgrim's power, verses 7 through 12. The pilgrim's passion. There is in this, young, this man a gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching desire. Every single person has one single passion. Sometimes that passion is not identified. Sometimes that dominant desire is for something we really would not choose. And sometimes that passion is for something ridiculous. A few years ago when I was in Spokane, Washington, the World's Fair was there. They had this flagpole sitter. He sat on the top of this flagpole all summer long, had him a little box built up on top there. He sat on the flag all, all summer on the flagpole. Some reporter interviewed him and asked him, why would a guy sit all summer on a flagpole? He says, what I've always wanted to do. He said, I remember as a little kid reading about a flagpole sitter. And he said, I've always had a burning desire to sit on top of a flagpole. And he said, I'm doing just what I've had as a dream for all of my life. For some, this passion is for something rather mundane and insignificant. And psychologists tell us that we're all moving toward our dominant thought. And the dominant thought is your passion that one thing that just occupies your waking mind, this desire, this passion. And the psalmist identifies this one consuming passion that has a twofold implication. He wanted God. There is in his heart, in his flesh, he said, a burning desire for God, to know God intimately and personally, for God to be more than just a word to me. He had a burning desire for God. And he even envies the, the sparrows that fly around in the courts of the temple and make their nest there because they're always in the presence of God. Some people have to be whipped to church. 
Others, like this man, cries for it. When Vanderbilt, the billionaire, stirred in his troubled sleep, his nurse who was with him 24 hours a day said, Sir, what do you want? And he cried in his troubled voice, I want God. I ask you this morning, can I ask you this question? Do you really want God? For there's never been a person who has desired Him, who has not possessed Him. And the desire that we have for God is the measure of the prophecy of that possession. In other words, if you really desire Him in an intimate and personal way, you may possess Him. You can have as much of God as you want. And I want you to believe this that it is as much possible for you to know God intimately and personally. You can know Him as well as the Apostle knew Him, the Apostle Paul, if you really want to know Him. Now some of us have just enough religion to keep us from gross acts of sin. And some of us have just enough religion to make us feel uncomfortable when we are not fulfilling our duty. And some of us have just enough religion to impel us to something, to do something we feel obligated to do. But how many of you this morning could stand and testify that you really know God intimately and personally? How much do you know Him? It's just how much you want to know Him. And His second-fold passion was a desire of the servant ministry. He said, I'd rather stand at the threshold and usher people into the presence of God than any other thing in the world. I'd rather do, he said, the most menial, insignificant task for God than to have the greatest honor bestowed on me in the world. A few years ago, I was preaching a revival out in a little town in Washington, and I met this young man he was a nominal churchgoer, not a Christian. His wife was a nominal Christian. Her parents were devout Christians from back in Tennessee, and so they started sending them tapes of Adrian Rogers' sermons, Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And one night, listening to those tapes in an obligation to her parents, this young executive found the Lord. His life began to change. It wasn't long until the Christmas annual Christmas party came and all the drinking started. And they started passing out the cocktails and they came around to this young man. He refused to drink. His superiors, his, his employers were insulted by it. They were offended. They saw it as a rejection of them, as a kind of a holier-than-thou attitude. They refused. When he refused, they were, they were insulted. So the next day he was called into the office of his superior and threatened. His job was um, on the line, he was told. This young executive told his boss, listen to this, watch this. He said, I want to say this to you in the kindest way that I can. I became a Christian about three months ago and my life has changed. He said, I want you to know I'd rather dig ditches and be in the will of God and please God than to be the president of this company. It wasn't long until he got the opportunity to dig ditches. <laughs> I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. I'd rather stand at the threshold and usher people in. That's a higher privilege than any honor bestowed. I'm intrigued in the language of this text. 
It's the language of security. There is this national, natural security. These birds find a nest in God's presence. Now the psalmist said, that's not how I find my security. I find my security at the altar of God. It wasn't long after Sidney Lanier's hands were twisted with arthritis and it was supposed that he'd never write again. He wrote these words as the marsh hen builds her nest on watery sod. I'll build me a nest on the greatness of God. And so the psalmist built him a nest on the greatness of God. It's the language of homesickness. You can just feel it pulsating in these passages. There was in this man's heart, this exiled, this, this yearning to go back to where God dwelt. There was this homesickness that was reaching out to his far country and drawing him. There is nothing, are you listening, there is nothing any more devastating than a man separated from his God. And I'm not sure that we've really identified that feeling. There's some of you who understand what I'm talking about. You've been separated from God by your sin and your rebellion, your iniquity and transgressions. And there is this restlessness that you don't know how to describe. There is this itch that you've never been able to scratch. There is this longing that you've never been able to satisfy. It's the way we're made. I heard Marshall Edwards tell about a man in his church named Aubrey Smith. Aubrey Smith was a retired missionary to Brazil. He was senile, his mind was about gone. He'd come to church and sometime he'd get up and wander around, walk out. He said he wore the same old suit, just slick and shiny and threadbare, only suit he had. Wore the same old food-stained tie every Sunday, the only tie he had. When he died, he had only one living relative, it was his sister. Marshall Edwards sat down with her to plan his funeral, found out why he wore the same old suits, the only suit he had. Found out why he wore the same old food-stained ties, the only tie he had. Found out why it was. For when he got his little check from the annuity board retirement, he just endorsed it and sent it to missions. And he wrote his on the back of an envelope, his last will and testament, and he, he, he decreed that everything he had was to be sold and given to missions and requested that an that a offering was to be taken at his funeral for missions. They got $2,500. While he was talking to his sister, he asked her, he said, why would Aubrey on Sunday come, up, come to church? Why would he, his mind was bad, he wandered around. Why would he even come? She said, oh, Brother Marshall, his mind was bad. And sometime he'd wake up on Tuesday, he wouldn't even know what day it was. He didn't know it was Tuesday. Sometime he'd wake up on Thursday, he wouldn't even know what day it was. He didn't know it was Thursday. But when he woke up on Sunday, he knew it was Sunday. There was something inside of him that just told the deep instincts of his creation, his being, just drove him to God. So on Sunday morning, he'd get up and put on that same old suit and he'd head out to church. It's the way we're made. And you can make it out to the far country and live there for the rest of your life, but I want you to know there'll be a chime go off in your bosom that'll call you to God like a church bell. It's the way we're made. This is the language not only of homesickness, not only of security, it's the language of romance. This is a picture of two lovers 
who long to be in one another's presence. For whatever else the Christian life is, the Christian life above everything else is a love affair between you and Christ. Don't ever let anybody take that away from you. Sure, the Christian life is a set of beliefs that you accept and, and, and trust. Sure, the Christian life is a set of disciplines and ramifications that you, that you abide by. But above everything else, the Christian life is a love affair between you and Jesus. You want to be with him, and he wants to be with you. The pilgrim's passion. There is the pilgrim's perspective. And passing through the valley of Baca, he makes it a place of springs. Now the Christian life is a progressive experience, so there are some things that have to happen before other things happen. And some of us want the other things before the first things. Listen to me carefully. There are some things that will never happen in your life until you have a heart passion for God. But when you develop that heart passion or when that happens to you and you have that intimate knowledge of God, He's more than a word, then the valleys of Baca become springs. Now I've read that the valley of Baca is a desert region southwest of Jerusalem that's barren, a barren, howling wasteland, most desert place in all the world we cannot imagine. We've never seen any place like it. And he's talking analogous, he's using spiritual language, so don't miss it. He says, now that I have this passion for God and in my heart are roads to Zion, I, passing through the valley of Baca, make it a place of springs. It is the classic statement of the kind of faith that dares dig blessing out of hardship. Well, you see, when a man has a walk with God, he has a new perspective, and he's able to see blessings in the buffetings, and he's able to see potentialities in the problems. He's able to see the pools, the springs in the desert. And he has this kind of faith that digs those springs out of hardship. I'm told that the word baka in the Hebrew is the word weeping, the valley of weeping. I tell you, watch this. A person who has this intimate relationship with God, he has even his tears have a new significance. If you were to analyze the tears of people who stand at the place of mourning and you put them in a bottle and analyze them, and you found the components of that person's tears who has no faith in God, and you contrasted that tears, those tears to the one who has an intimate relationship with God, you'd see a noticeable difference. The tears of the one who has no faith in God would contain hopelessness and despair and even bitterness. But the tears of the one who walks with God Contain, would contain hope and gratitude and, and, and joy. Even his tears have a new significance in the valleys with God. Did you read that article in the Reader's Digest? It was really from the Catholic Digest put in the Reader's Digest. This woman was an executive. 
She was having a tough life. Things weren't going well, and she was so depressed and unhappy. And she had an appointment one day to see a man at noon, and they were going to transact some business. When the business transaction was over, she had this need to talk about it. So she just mentioned to him, she said, you know, I'm going through a tough time in my life. And he said, I'll tell you what to do, spend an hour with God every day. I'm too busy. I don't have time to spend an hour with God. Well, he said, I was too. I went through a tough time. He said, I just started spending an hour with God. My life has never been the same. So she tried it. And this article is about that. I think it's the title of it, The Most Life-Changing Hour I've Ever Spent. And this is how she concluded the article. She said, now I still have the same sorrows and we still have the same trouble, but when you bring your troubles into the presence of God, they seem different. And so a little woman stood by her pastor, true story, over in East Texas. A little woman stood by her pastor and they watched as they lowered the casket of her husband of 60 years down into the grave. And this little widow turned to her pastor and said, Pastor, pray that God will make me a good steward of my sorrows. Wow. Pray that God will make me a good steward of my sorrows. For when you walk with God in the valleys of Baca, even your tears mean something different. Possessions, steward, I'm a steward of my sorrows. Then he said, even in the desert, God may choose to bring his gentle rain. The word there, gentle rain, is the rain that comes in the springtime as the planting comes that guarantees the harvest, the gentle rain. You say, well, it never rains in the desert. Yes, it does. It never rains in the desert. Yes, it does. And that word blessing translated blessing in the English language is really the word for the green sproutings that come up when the gentle rain falls in a desert. Let me tell you something. Listen to me carefully. When you walk with God, even in the desert, there comes the gentle rains of His grace. It rains there. As a matter of fact, you look in the Beatitudes at how many times that word blessed is found and you'll find that the blessings of God often come the strangest places. The Pilgrim's Perspective. One last thought before this thing blows up on me here. The Pilgrim's Power. And the Bible says, the Scripture says, and they go from strength to strength. Did you know that God has reserved His best blessing just for you? Now, I'm not sure what that term, strength to strength, means. I think it can be illustrated like this. I, I, I remember hearing a reading that when Daniel Boone le left his native North Carolina to go to Tennessee, that he knew that, that probably he had, did not have enough provisions for the round trip. And so on the way, he would just dig holes and he'd get provisions and put in those holes called caches. Or he'd get a cave, he'd find a cave and he'd put some provision there for the return journey. And so as he came back down through the same trail back to North Carolina, what he did was he just went from point of provision to point of provision. That's the way the Christian lives his life. 
He just lives from point of provision to point of provision. Now some go from defeat to defeat and so some go from crisis to crisis and the, and the soaps on television are a pretty good description of your life from crisis to crisis. But the man who has a heart for God goes from point of provision to point of provision. And I can parade folks up on this platform, hundreds of them today, who give testimony that they have never been, never have come into a time in life where God has not come through. And they've looked down the road and it seems like they're not going to have the energy to keep on. They're not going to be able to make it to the next to the, to, they might see Jerusalem in, in the valley of Baca, but they don't feel like they've got enough strength to go on. And then there's a provision of his strength just in the nick of time. That's what Jeremiah was talking about when he said the, loves, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. God provides the strength at the need. And, the, and Paul could shout from a cell, I can do all things through Christ who keeps on pouring his provision into me. That's more than a cliche. The cliche is where there's a will, there's a way. The truth is that where there is God's will, there is a way. Some of you are acquainted with Peter Marshall's writings and some of you are acquainted with Catherine Marshall's writings, his wife. She died a few years ago and at her funeral in the National Presbyterian Cathedral or Church in Washington, D.C., her son, John Peter, eulogized her. After Lewis Evans, the pastor of the church, read some scripture, her son, John Peter, gave these words about his mother. He said, I don't grieve for my mother's death. He said, I know that she's with the Lord and the first thing she did when she went through the gates, he said, I'm sure that she headed down the streets of gold straight to the throne room to see the Lord. But he said, I have a feeling that it took her quite a while to get there because along the streets, I know there were people by the hundreds who reached out and grabbed her arm, grabbed her hand and said, Catherine Marshall, I want to thank you because if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be here. That's what it's all about. You see, that's why a man is to have a heart for God. It doesn't stop with himself. And as he journeys through this life with his heart for God, he passes through bitter experiences that just perfect him so that somewhere along the way he helps somebody through the threshold into the presence of God. That's what it's all about. And there's a hymn in our hymn book that's built after this psalm Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand.
the pilgrim's power is the Father's hand. Would you place yours in His while we pray together? Father, just as in the early service this morning, there are many who could come and say, I'm going through a tough time. And I need the Lord to help me. I need the Lord to help me. There are some of us who are going through a tough time. We know the territory called the Valley of Baca the valley of weeping. Where we're going, Lord, we want to take others with us. That life for us will be more than just a selfish getting for self. To become a selfless giving to others. Grant us that wish and passion. We pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. Would you look? The first invitation is for that person who might be willing to say this morning, I don't know the Lord. I don't know the Lord. You talk about a personal relationship with God, I don't have that. I want that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Help me to know the Lord. There may be someone that need to come this morning to say, I need to be, I need a closer walk with God. I have this heart-wrenching desire to know Him better. Help me to know Him better. There may be some who need to join the church this morning. The invitation is for your response to what God leads you to do. And so we'll stand to sing and give you that opportunity. You come. sing together just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed from the old Lamb of God I come my appeal has to do with those this morning who need rededication of life that's the way we call it we understand it to be that we need to repent of the kind of life we're living to the discipline and the faith and the kind of life that he wants us to live some need to join this church, perhaps college students or adults who are here now, or to come this morning to say, I want to claim salvation's gift for me. By faith, I want eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, these are the invitations. You'll need to come quickly. 
We'll sing two stanzas, then we're through. You come.